Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Thursday, June 2nd. We begin with an update on the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Just over three months into the conflict, what is the Russian endgame? And are Ukrainian allies doing enough to help the war-torn country? We get the thoughts of Robert Hewish, Professor of International Development Studies from Dalhousie University. Many women in Calgary are feeling unsafe on city streets these days and are taking steps to protect themselves against a possible assault. But what are the legal implications of carrying a weapon for self-defense? We discuss with Calgary-based defense attorney, Belfer Durr. Continuing the conversation on personal safety, we catch up with Lorna Seelig, owner and creator of Safe for Life, a program that teaches women real-world self-defense techniques. Lorna shares her personal story on how the program came to be. And finally, it's Tourism Week. We speak with the CEO of Travel Alberta, David Goldstein, on what's planned for the week and the importance of supporting the provincial tourism industry after an incredibly difficult two years. The U.S. and Germany sending more military might to help Ukraine defend itself against Russian invaders. But Russia and President Putin says they are just pouring fuel on the fire. Joining us to help break down the latest is Robert Hewish, Associate Professor in International Development Studies at Dalhousie University. Good morning to you once again, Professor. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, everybody. Thanks to be nice to be here. Glad you're here to help us. Uh, you've been great in sort of explaining a lot of what's happening in this war. And with this new military aid we're seeing from NATO countries, specifically these rocket launchers from the U.S., is Russia really right about this adding fuel to the fire? Is there any more that, that Russia can do, is what I'm asking, I guess, in terms of you know their attack and their advancements within the Ukraine? Right. No, you're you're on the money here because what the U.S. and Germany are offering at the moment are the sorts of weapon systems that can essentially protect Ukraine right now uh, as to what is not occupied by by Russian forces. What we've seen so far is is the Russian military just be a sort of a bumbling failure in terms of its original goals. The idea was to go straight to Kiev, uh, regardless of what the early uh, statements out of Moscow were about. But now we've seen that because the resistance has been so effective in protecting the capital and the main parts of Ukraine, where we see Russian troops uh, starting to, to conglomerate and sort of stay put is in that far eastern part of, of, of Ukraine. Uh, so the Donetsk, the Lunasch area, Maripol, and Crimea. So the weaponry that Russia has right now that's working is sort of being concentrated in that area. And, and what we're, we've been hearing uh, from reports coming out of Ukraine is that it's, it's, it's a bunch of artillery, lots of tanks focusing on key targets as opposed to trying to spread out widely over, over the entire country. And that means that in those areas within the Far East, we're seeing this entrenchment. Those Russian forces are probably digging in for the long term. So the weapons that are being provided by Germany and the United States are there to make sure that there's no further advancements towards Kiev. And we're starting to see that this is something where the tone is also changing out of Moscow in a way. 
where they're, they're sort of saying that this is be, this was the goal all along was to to repatriate uh, the the Russian influenced areas of, of eastern Ukraine. But what the other thing in the back of everyone's mind should be is the persistence that Vladimir Putin has put forward about nuclear response and nuclear threat. And so anytime new armaments are coming into the equation, he's very quick to become threatening with uh, the possibility of using uh, nuclear materials uh, within this conflict or possibly others down the road. You know, there was talk at the beginning of this, uh, uh, Robert, as far as maybe the mental state of President Vladimir Putin. And now there's also been questioning about his health. What do we know as we move over three month, the three-month mark about his mental health or, or his health in general? Well, certainly his physical health uh, has been commented on uh, heavily uh, in in the past uh, a couple of weeks, especially you know there's, there's, he's visibly uh, you know sitting at tables and it almost looks like a position of pain and, and trying to be very distant from others uh, around him at this time. The the other thing we can say in terms of perhaps some of the anxieties that that he's he's put forward, we see that with his approach to COVID, this this complete isolation that he's taken on. Only a very limited amount of people have have actually got access to him. And that's what sort of speaks into sort of the bigger issue within Russian strategy right now is that those who went forward on the early uh, this early war, the early stages of the war, uh, were essentially conscripts, uh, people who were in their 18, 19, 20 years old who thought they were going on a training exercise themselves. Turns out there's a huge conflict waiting for them. And this doesn't speak to anything about the higher up, more permanent military within Moscow, even if they believe in what Vladimir Putin is, is trying to accomplish here, if they would even follow him. I think there's, a, there's enough murmuring going around within, within Moscow and other, other circles to say that there is a lack of confidence in, in Mr. Putin's ability, and not just in terms of leading this campaign, but also governing the country and his, his impact in world affairs. The loss of life has certainly been horrendous. Another issue, though, that we're hearing more and more about are the exports from Ukraine. And with the Russian blockade in the Black Sea, uh, word is that there are 20 million tons of wheat stuck in that country. So is anything being done to try and find alternative routes for Ukrainian exports? Well, there are. The, the European Union is now looking at trying to build supply routes that will, will get those products through Kiev into to Poland and then on to uh, and onto Germany and from there. The, the thing is, is that with, with products like wheat, it travels much quicker and easier by sea. And if uh, the Black Sea and, and, and the area around uh, Crimea is compromised now due to this conflict, that's going to put a huge hindrance on the ability to move wheat in that way. And let's also talk about cooking oils. I mean, uh, sunflower oil is a huge export out of Ukraine. And when you've got restrictions on basic staples like wheat, and cooking oil coming together at the same time. These are what we call early warning signs for potential famines breaking out in places like the Middle East, where those two products are, are incredibly important, but unable to be to be produced locally in many, many cases. This is a this is a, the next concern that we should be really worried about. Um, besides the, the, again, the nuclear threat that Putin regularly puts forward, is this real threat right now about interrupting these markets and these supply chains? Uh, how will this carry out over the summer and right now some people are forecasting that there will be issues of famine and hunger breaking out in parts of the world as a result of this and to that this is why uh, it's very difficult to approach conflicts like this with these half measures uh, you know the the enthusiasm 
to to see the war end, to see a transition of power in Moscow, seems to have waned a little bit from Western nations, sort of taking a sigh of relief. Well, at least Kiev didn't fall. But as long as this apparatus is set up in Moscow, we can expect further complications and further intimidations going forward. If it's, if it's spiking the price of oil one day and then intimidating food supplies the next, and if it's, uh, again, back to uh, getting into nuclear proliferation, all of these factors stay on the table as long as Mr. Putin is able to do what he thinks he can do. Well, you know, you alluded to the fact that it's, it seems like a, not stagnating, perhaps, but the Russians are being held in, in the east there. Ukrainian uh, uh, military and fighters are getting the weapons they need to hold them. Nobody has a crystal ball, uh, but what are some of the, the, the paths to the end of this conflict? What, what, what could we see in the next couple of months, and can we put a cap on this? Well, I think the Mr. Zelensky, uh, Vladimir Zelensky, in President of Ukraine, put it best. He said that this this war will end on the battlefield, but going forward, the, the the progress forward will come through negotiations. So the strategy of ending this through some means of of, of military aggression is is starting to see the final pieces of the equation put into place. We're seeing this concentration of Russian hardware in the eastern part of Ukraine that cannot likely be removed by Ukrainian forces alone. And then we're seeing this relatively peaceful stability towards the west of, of Ukraine right now. Will this become the bargaining chip to to start to negotiate between Ukraine and Russia with, again, international community providing support to those negotiations in the sense that would that eastern part of Ukraine effectively go under Russian control and would Ukraine uh, be able to maintain its autonomy within the rest of the territory? That's something that we could see on the table. But the big push that uh, is, is sort of the, the one area where Mr. Putin, I think, will, will probably be the hill that he dies on is, is to see if Ukraine becomes an official member of NATO. Will he accept that or will he continue to be belligerent? I think that's what we can expect in the months ahead. Always appreciate your perspective. Thanks again for joining us this morning. Thanks very much, everybody. Thank you. Take care. We'll talk to you again. Robert Hewish, Associate Professor in International Development Studies at Dalhousie University. More and more women in Calgary feeling unsafe on our city streets and are taking steps to protect themselves against possible assault. But what are the legal implications of carrying weapons for self-defense? Joining us to talk about it is Calgary-based defense attorney Balfour Durr. Good morning, Mr. Durr. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Happy to be here. Appreciate it. So, you know, we've had a couple of high-profile assaults in the city, and I think women are feeling a little unsafe at times and maybe carrying something in their pockets or purse. Are we able to do that? Is that legal for a woman to carry something in order to defend themselves? Uh, Well, like most legal answers, yes and no. Hmm. Uh, it It depends on the thing, and it depends on how it's, going to be used or its intended use. Uh, You you see, there are a weapon in Canada can be anything. So we have weapons offenses, but a a weapon, um, you know, I'm sitting at a desk with a pen. It's a pen. It's used for writing. If someone were to take that pen and stab someone, it's a weapon. So it depends on, that's why I say it depends on the thing and the circumstances there. Here's another example. Uh, bear spray. Bear spray is sold in Canada, and it's you know it's intended for uh, out in the bush by yourself or up in the mountains by yourself. 
it's got a, a volume, you know, a certain volume amount. It's got a range on it. Uh, but it really is a form of mace, which is a prohibited weapon in the criminal code. The criminal code prohibits mace, uh, sprays that are intended to debilitate a person. And that's exactly what bear spray is. So if, if you're in the mountains and you've got this thing, no problem. If you're walking down a street at night from a bar and you've got it in your purse, let's say, it could be considered a concealed weapon because there are not many bears on streets in downtown Calgary. Hmm. So it's, it's not as black and white as, as, as it seems and not as easy as the TV shows portray it to be. Okay, well, you say, you know, for example, when you talk about the bear spray, spray prohibited in the criminal code for carrying it, um, and it, it was a concealed weapon, if you're using something like that, but it can be proven that you are defending yourself, how does the law view something like that? Surely you must have had some cases you've taken on um, in that instance. So it, a person is entitled to defend themselves. So it's a very good question you just asked. And there are two aspects to it. The first is, um, relates to self-defense. And people are entitled to use a reasonable amount of force in the circumstances to defend themselves. Okay, so that's the first thing. So if, if you grab a can of bear spray and someone's attacking you and you use it, you may be justified, um, on the one hand, in repelling, literally, re- literally and figuratively repelling the assault, um, because you've used something at hand. It could have been a two-by-four. It could be your car keys um, to stab someone. Um, but there may be another aspect to it in that you could also, that, that is the victim of this assault, could be charged with having the thing in the first place. Like, just because you're using it in self, a thing in self-defense doesn't change the nature of the thing. So if, if a person pulled out a handgun, um, which could be a prohibited weapon, and you use it to defend yourself. Well, you might be able to justify self-defense on a certain level, but you're still going to have a problem with whether you had a prohibited weapon or not. So, so you get caught using bear spray to defend yourself. I, I mean, I, you know, maybe maybe the police charge you. Maybe it goes to court. Maybe you're found guilty in that sense. What does that mean if that something like that were to happen to you? I mean, you know, the, what's sort of the end result of of having a record like that for? Say it's me. Well, if if you're convicted of a criminal offense, it ends up with a record. It's the you know you could go you could be fined you could be put on probation you can go to jail. Any of those things are options for convictions under the criminal code. Um, it's the criminal record, as far as I'm concerned, that, um, it, well, going to jail would be a big deal. But mm-hmm. the criminal record is, a, is something that's very important because that could prohibit you from travel, for instance, to the United States. Mm-hmm. They, it, it, weapons offenses fall into a category that, that will red flag you and may disentitle you to, um, to go into the state. Now, now, I should just go back one step and say, you know, whether the police would charge you if you had a can of dog spray or bear spray in your bag and somebody attacked you, I highly doubt the police would charge you. But could, theoretically, could they? Yes. Um, but we, we would hope that, you know, in the big circumstances, if it were truly justified, um, that you wouldn't get charged. But that's, that doesn't mean it's legal. Mm-hmm. It just means someone has exercised some discretion. 
on your behalf. Very interesting and a timely conversation. We appreciate your time, sir. You're very welcome. That is Belfer Durr, Calgary-based defense attorney. There are hundreds of assaults every year in Calgary, from groping to armed physical attacks. And after two high-profile assaults in public parks this spring, some women are starting to arm themselves for protection. Lorna Seelig is the owner of Safe for Life, a self-defense and personal safety training company. And she says there are better ways. Good morning to you, Lorna. Thanks for being with us. Hi, Sue. Hey, Good we, morning. Ju- we just talked about the legal side of things, but, you know, there are obviously other concerns about women carrying a weapon for protection, right? From your perspective in your line of work, what do you think about that? Well, I think there's always a, a bit of a risk um, in carrying uh, what might be considered a weapon. And, and when you think about the repertoire of weapons, um, if someone... Um, ha- has an intention of using a weapon against you, that weapon can be anything, Sue. That weapon can be a baseball bat. It can be, uh, you know, a a shoe. It can be uh, their fists. And so anything really can be considered a weapon. And I think in in the classes that we teach and we provide, our message to um, anyone who takes this class is that we already have the skills and the um, the tools that we need uh, to defend ourselves and ward off and escape a threatening or a um, risky uh, experience. Those would be our voice, our minds, our eyes, our ears, um, our fists if we need be, um, and our feet to kick if we need to escape. Lorna, it's interesting, safeforlife.ca, the name, and it's uh, your your company. How did it come to be? Is this from a personal experience? Why did you decide that, uh, you know, we needed something like this, and this is something that you would take on? Well, interesting story, Andy. We have uh, this class um, and this curriculum has been part of the Calgary and Southern Alberta community and Alberta uh, community for uh, about 25 years. It was originally um, started by a city of Calgary uh, police officer, a female officer. She um, experienced way too often coming upon a crime scene um, where uh, somebody had been injured, um, attacked, and discovered that, you know, with some um, quick acting and, and effective um, strategies, that uh, assault could have been either avoided or um, could have ended um, much, much quicker with just some, and I don't mean to minimize that with a just, but with, with some strategies and tools for awareness and uh, situational awareness so that um, the incidents um, could have been significantly less. Now, uh, personally, yes, I uh, had a situation in my teens where I was um, assaulted and then one again in my mid-20s. And because of that, I've always been interested in how can we as citizens um, do something to make those kinds of events and experiences um, happen less often. And I happened upon um, the course that was being um, taught in one of my children's um, schools at the time. And I uh, reached out to the owner of the program, um, the former city county police officer, and I said, whoa, I love this. Um, I want to learn more about it. And then fast forward about 
17 years and here I am the owner of the program so and I love that you do have ex-cops on there and whoever yeah. you, you you dress them in that those blue man suits if anybody's ever yeah. seen them so that you can you have a it is a I've taken your courses at, yeah. at Safe for Life and it is a serious course where you learn to protect yourself from someone who is going full out on you while they wear that blue man suit so that you can fight back and you learn to talk you know as you talked about those those personal tools that we have that I think we don't have enough faith in or, or forget that we can use mm-hmm. them. Well, absolutely. And and I think when we are reminded of them and when we are when it's it's um when we have the opportunity to see in a class where you are literally up against a blue man needing to fight to escape and he and when I say blue man, he wears a um it's it's what's called a fist suit and it is actually um the same suit that city Calgary well police officers all over um Canada use for their training, for their physical training. Um, and yeah, in our classes, people go up against um, the, the padded attacker. They have the opportunity to practice the skills that they've used, those skills of, of striking, kicking, screaming, um, you know, uh, backing away and, and putting the um, uh, awareness uh, skills to use. Yeah, very interesting, super timely. We appreciate your time this morning, Lorna. Thanks for joining us. You're very welcome. Thanks for calling. Thanks. That is Lorna Seelig, owner of Safe for Life. You can find out more about what she does at Safe for that's the number for life.ca. It is tourism week and Travel Alberta is releasing its 2022 through 2025 business plan. With all the details, we're joined by David Goldstein, CEO of Travel Alberta. Good morning to you, David. Thanks for having me on this morning. Thank you for being happy here. Happy tourism week. Hey, thank you. Uh happy to to, to, to be a tourist in my own city and across my entire province. I, I want to ask you, before we get to the business plan and, and where we're going, I know it's been a, a rough couple of years, uh, let's talk about Tourism Week as a whole. Uh, what is it and what is it all about? Well, this is, uh, thanks for the question. This is, you know, annually we sort of celebrate the beginning of the tourism season, although we're pretty good at developing four-season product here in Alberta, uh, especially in the winter in the ski in the ski business. But um, this is sort of the big kickstart to uh, the summer season. It's an opportunity for the, uh, um, I think, in this instance, for the um, for the industry to start coming together and 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 really forge through to the recovery. I think your you know, your listeners might might not realize that before COVID, tourism was a ten billion dollar sector of the Alberta economy. Uh, and about half of that was Albertans traveling around Alberta. The next 25% were uh, other Canadians who would come to Alberta from BC, Alberta, Quebec. Um, and the last 25% were international travelers, um, of which we used to do very well. Uh, and of that, about 60% of those were Americans. So it's going to take a while for us with you know, continued border restrictions and, and uh, rebuilding flights uh, to get those uh, international travelers back. Uh, but we see great demand amongst Albertans who are traveling around Alberta, which is fantastic, and uh, Canadians who, uh, um, you know, a lot of bookings from Canadians, uh, both out, we, uh, out east and, and BC, who uh, uh, are coming to Alberta. And I, I, we're, we're excited. We think we're going to have a pretty good season. So with all that being said, David, you know, where do you spend the money? Where do you kind of go particularly to try and draw people back to Alberta? So um, we have an aligned strategy with our partners like Tourism Calgary. So 
you know, where they're, they may focus a little bit closer to home. Uh, uh, we, we're, we have a small campaign with Albertans to travel around Alberta. Um, we, but I would say most of our investment from a marketing perspective would be other Canadians and particularly Americans and, and focusing on um, uh, California, Texas, and New York, which have always been really good, reliable sources of, of tourists for uh, both, both business and leisure tourists for Alberta. Uh, and we're starting to see some rebuilding of those flights with our partners at WestJet and Air Canada and Flair and others. So, so we're starting to see that air access come back. Uh, and so that's been our, our, probably our biggest investment right now. Any trepidation, David? Because I know that we, we, we've, nobody could anticipate the past two years. Going ahead, you want to be as bold as possible. You want to give your partners the greatest opportunities. But is there still a little bit of trepidation? I don't think we can use the word trepidation in Alberta. I just don't think it's in our genes. Uh, no, we, we, our, our, our industry has been, uh, as I think you pointed out, the f- first hit, hardest hit, last, uh, last to come out of this. Uh, but we also know from the data that there's so much pent-up demand. I mean, starting with visiting friends and family, but I'm, you know, there's a ton of pent-up demand both on both sides of the border. Um, and we just have to have the confidence uh, to be in the game. And again, we're competing against some major destinations around North America, but uh, we have great product. We have great people. Uh, throughout the pandemic, uh, Destination Canada's research so that Albertans were the most receptive to having travelers in the country. Uh, and that's just about hospitality and who we are. Um, and uh, we're looking forward to receiving those travelers. I love it. Uh, and as we celebrate Tourism Week, a point in your press release that I really like that the silver lining of COVID is that tourism is finally being recognized as a community builder, job creator, and an economic driver. And that's just good news for this entire province. Thank you so much for your time this morning, David. Really appreciate it. Have a great week and please, Calgarians, get out there and travel the province. You got it. David Goldstein, CEO of Travel Alberta. You can go to travelalberta.com. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcast, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts. And tune in to Mornings with Sue and Andy from 530 to 9 every weekday morning on 770 CHQR.